I don't think I hear you very well now. Can you hear me now? Yes, now I do. Okay. All right. Hello, all, and welcome to this very special episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined today <laughs> by uh, my dear friend Ernesto Crespo, and I have to disclose from the very top that we are, in fact, dear, dear friends. Um, he has helped me through many hard times, and I like to think I've helped him through many hard times as well. But he has a fascinating history uh, that I think would be worthwhile sharing with all of you. Um, so he's graciously agreed to join me and talk a little bit about his history. Hello, Ernesto. Welcome to the channel. Hello, Daniel. It is my pleasure to be here with you tonight. Ah, the pleasure is all mine. So I wanted to begin right off the top with some song lyrics, a song to which you introduced me <laughs> by the name of Ya Viene Llegando by the Cuban-American singer Willie Torino. That's correct. Now, the lyrics are as follows. La resignación es fiel, amigo, del hombre cuando tiene que emigrar, which translates to mean resignation is the faithful friend of a man when he has to emigrate. Now, I want to know what significance those song lyrics have for you. Well, that's a good question. Um, it, it has a lot of meaning, that song. That, that's a song that came out I want to say in the 1980s, if, if I can put a year, would be 1982, 1983, I was maybe four or five years old. So I didn't know much about it. Now, when I became a younger adult, I started to listen to that type of music and that song is specific. And uh, it just reveals the, the truth about a lot of Cubans that go through during the during the period of time that they live in Cuba. I mean, during the dictatorship that's still happening up to this date in that country. So that song pretty much details how someone have to leave behind their own culture, their own language, their own friends and family, and come to a completely new place with a new language, new culture, new people. Right. So. And has resignation been a faithful friend to you? Yes, without a doubt. Mm. Yes. Very interesting. And I know that uh, Chirino, by whom I was deeply moved when you, when you um, introduced me to him, has been very influential for a lot of Cuban-Americans. I think he captures in many ways uh, the essence of their struggle as they moved from one culture to another. So I just wanted to begin with those lyrics because again, they've really been influential uh, on me and I thank you for having introduced them to me. And that, uh, that line of the maybe fifth or sixth verse was, was particularly meaningful for me. The idea of resignation being a faithful friend, uh, perhaps the only friend that you have when you are arriving in completely new country, as you did. At what age? Tell us. At what uh, age? I came at the age of 27. 27. 27. So you had lived your youth, your childhood, your young adulthood in Cuba. And I'm sure you have many distinctive and clear memories of that time. So just give us a little bit of biographical, autobiographical information. Tell us the city in which you were born and perhaps the year, if you feel uh, comfortable to do so. <laughs> of course. So I was born in Camagüey, Cuba mm. in 1979. Mm. And tell me, uh, what are some of your earliest memories of Cuba as a child? 
growing up in that city. The earliest memories of Cuba as a child. Uh, it was great. It was perfect. I mean, as a child, you are just a child. So you live in a society where everybody, it's about the same. So everybody have similar toys. Uh, it's a culture, or at least back in the day, when I was a child, it's a, it's a culture where kids go outside and play uh, with each other. And you don't have too many fancy toys. It's just you play baseball, you play soccer, uh, you play games like that. You climb a tree to pick up a fruit. I mean, simple games like that. And everybody was the same. So my childhood in Cuba was, in my opinion, it was the best because you look you look back on it fondly you enjoy the the memories absolutely without a doubt i mean uh, there there was a lot of interaction playing with kids going to school talking playing sports uh, i mean it was just no social media back then mm -hmm. either uh, no cell phones uh, so no screen time mm -hmm. uh, it was just a lot of interaction a lot of kids trying to, 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 to play, you know, and the whole place was a, a playground. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting, we've discussed this privately, but um, I had a conversation a few months ago with, with a woman similarly aged, born in the 1970s, who was from Russia, and she grew up in, uh, during the, the, the Soviet regime, so to speak. And uh, you were struck by the fact that the memories of your childhood were somewhat similar. There was a, there was an equality. There was a, a sameness uh, amongst you and all of your um, little friends, your your little colleagues, so to speak, comrades, maybe. Um, and that made for a very convivial, a very enjoyable social environment. There seems not to have been a lot of envy between people. Uh, you seem to have lived a kind of a vigorous, active life um, in which everyone was an equal participant. Of course, you probably had your little fights and squabbles at times, but overall, and I was struck by this when I talked to Olga, the young woman from Russia, that we, we in the West, especially in America, we look at these communist countries as um, irredeemably bad, and perhaps in some ways politically they are, but it's fascinating to learn from the adults who were there as children that actually they had a very enjoyable childhood and they they kind of flourished in their youth just as we hope that our own children in this country flourish. I think in many ways we've lost that. You know, children today with all those screens and with all the attachments to technology don't quite get what you had and what I had to maybe a slightly less degree but a similar degree. Definitely. I mean, uh, I think I think once you start to become a teenager and you live in a communist country like Cuba, uh, once you start to get older and then you start to realize and and see with your own eyes how the country operates and and the pros and cons of the society and you start to realize that there is a regime, there is a dictatorship. Uh, that's when your perspective starts to change. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a child, you just don't think about any of those kind of things. As, as, as a child, you are just so genuine and you are in this world just to love. And yes. that's what you're born with. So as a and child. Try, yes, and you try to retain that, that innocence and protect that innocence as long as you can. But I think upon reflection, we've spoke about, spoken about this before. I think upon reflection, you realize that some aspects of your childhood were markedly unique. Uh, for instance, the name of the school uh, that you attended. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, back in 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 the '60s, you know, mm. the EU, USSR was a big influence in Cuba. So the elementary school that I went to was named after Lenin. Mm. 
if I go back, if I remember, I mean, uh, there was a time that there was kind of like a, an exchange student program where uh, some kids from Russia will come to the school and will do some sports events and boxing at the time. I remember me boxing with the Russian kid uh, mm. at the age of seven or eight years of age. Abum, I'm sure you got the better. You're a fantastic athlete. I, I, I don't remember. I'm strong. It's a good thing. <laughs> you didn't stand a chance, I'm sure. <laughs> I've, I've seen you throw a swing. <laughs> but yes, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's part of the history that they teach in the school, too. I mean, they, they sure. everything, the entire, the entire society is, it has a, such a, huge foundation about socialism and communism that, that it, it, that's and, what they try for. And I, I want to ask you, I mean, of course, it's difficult to remember from that young an age what your curriculum consisted of. But do you remember from a very early age learning about such luminary figures as, as Lenin, as Stalin, as Marx, uh, and of course, as Castro? Like, do you remember that? Uh, infusing your education from a very young age? Do you remember perhaps homework assignments when you had to, I don't know, write an essay in, in the loving regard of, of a certain figure? Does Do any instances like that stand out? Or was it just a general sense of esteem toward these figures? I, I, I mean, it's hard for me to, to remember now exactly the details of it, but I, if, I would like to say that that yes was a big part of the history in in the classroom about some of those uh, names that you just mentioned. Uh, mm. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Now tell me uh, briefly about the way in which your school day was organized. Now I already know the answer to this question, but I think it will be really interesting and fascinating to all of our many viewers. Uh, tell us about your a normal school day at, uh, what was it, Lenin Elementary? Lenin Vladimir. Elementary. Well, <laughs> yes, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, well, it's, I think up to this day, you know, kids wear a uniform, so I have to wear like red shorts, a white shirt, mm -hmm. and, uh, and a blue tie, like a blue tie. The national. So, mm. the, exactly. And when you Again, when you look at the colors, I'm wearing the colors of the Kippen flag, mm -hmm. red, blue, and white. Yeah. Uh, so the mornings will start with uh, kind of like you, you start talking about whatever is going on in Cuba at the time. Uh, and it's always trying to, to teach her to transmit the kids how great the revolution is. Mm. So that's how you started that. So, so of course, in, in most communist countries, the idea is that there's a perpetual revolution, right? That it's incessant, that you exactly. come to that ultimate state of perfection. Because if you look around, you quite you understand that you're quite distant from any sort of perfection. Um, so is that is that ingrained in the mind of a young child or or is the focus on you know, 1959 and, and the arrival of Fidel from... Well, that too. Oh, definitely. I mean, the arrival of Fidel and the, the revolution, that's that's just, I mean, that, that is just, you cover that through five, six years of elementary school. I mean, you, you got to keep in mind what, what, what I was describing to you, now the, the word came to my mind. It's called matutino. Matutino. Yes. Que significa? And it's kind of like an early morning news. Let's put it that way. Right, because uh, in English there's a word matutinal, which just means matutinal. it's the same etymological root. Yeah, exactly. Morning, matutinal. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and you are you have lines of kids from the age of five to the age of eleven mm. years of age, looking at this stage where people are either performing something about the revolution or communicating something about the revolution right. uh, every single day. Hmm. So that's how you start your day. That's, After that, that's striking. I, I mean, here in America, we do 
well, we don't do anything quite similar to that, but of course there's a, there's a, a general uh, remembrance of our founding, but it's not acted out with the same uh, verve, <laughs> the same regularity. That's right. so. That's fascinating. So that would it's be a daily occurrence. A daily daily occurrence. So you got to keep in mind that the the way the system works, it's very controlling. Mm. So everything everything is controlled by the government. So that's what they do, and they implant that chip in your brain at a mm. very young age, mm-hmm. and you just grow with it, and then you don't know what's right or wrong or what's true and false until you become a teenager or an adult and then you start seeing with your own eyes what the actual system is all about. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I want to talk about that. I want to get to that point at which you realize that the system might not be uh, as mm, congenial to human flourishing as you might have been led to believe. But first, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that school day of yours. So you would go from the the Matutinas, was it called? That's correct, Matutino. Matutino, uh, my apologies. And mm-hmm. you would begin your school day in the classroom, is that correct? That is correct. You will, you will begin your school day in the classroom, and then you will either, whatever, whatever class you have during the day, Spanish, math, history, geography, um, stuff like that. Then you, we have PE classes as well, where you have to um, participate in sports. And, and you needed to do well in the sports. I mean, back in my time, if I can't remember what, what the norm was, but if you didn't pass PE, you mm. didn't pass your grade. Mm. So, so that was as important as being in the classroom. So right. that was and you basically stay there. You, your day starts at seven thirty in the morning, and you are done by four thirty. So it's just now. Was there not a second part of your day when you would do something outside? Am I remembering? This? Yes. Well, that 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 was not on the elementary school. That was more. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was more at right before you get the school system is is a little bit different in Cuba. Yeah. So before you go to the university in Cuba, it's there is a, a three years program that's called pre universitario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's proud university. Sure. So you go there from the age of fifteen to seventeen. You come out at the age of seventeen. So mm-hmm. uh, in that particular system, either you go to classes in the morning and then you work on the field in the afternoon. Or vice versa. Mm. And when I'm talking about working on the field, I'm really talking about working on the field. <laughs> you are, uh, so for, for all the American listeners, this isn't what we come to term uh, field work, which is typically in a university setting. You'll go out into the field of your desired profession. If you're doing field work in biology, you might go to a local laboratory. Or if you're doing field work in engineering, you might go to a local um, um, port authority and, and look at the naval ships or something of that nature. No, no, this is quite a quite different field. This, <laughs> this is this is labor work. Yeah, <laughs> this is. I mean, it might. I mean, I have to go and pick up oranges and uh, cut the grass with a machete. I mean, you don't have a pushing a lowing war, so you have a machete in your hand. Of course, the oranges were for your consumption, correct? Uh, for my consumption and also just for sporting important back then in Cuba. Yeah. So, yes, and, 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 and it was not like you will go and do your best. No, you will go and they say you have to pick up or collect X amount of oranges. Mm-hmm. And I'm Good like, cool. yeah. yeah, I was like, hmm, what if I can? I wish many days I couldn't. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, were there it was, any, any repercussions if you were to fail, if you were to fall short of your quota? If you could fall short of your quota, you this type of school, you will spend two weeks there and then you will spend a weekend at your home and then you will come back again. So if you didn't meet your quota, the possibility of you not being able to go to your house mm-hmm. and 
you will have to stay in school working again to try mm. to make up for what you have missed. Right. So that was the punishment. Right. And I suppose if you disliked uh, your <laughs> your home uh, and, and your parents and things of that nature, as many young people do, that might be an incentive to uh, perhaps <laughs> slack off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you so. You basket at the end of the day. A few oranges of the of the necessary amount. I don't think so. I mean, just just I, keep I, in mind I, when you... I tend to think uh, most students would very much prefer to go home. Uh, Absolutely. For their for their, for their holiday breaks. You, so you got to keep in mind just just to touch on that. You got to keep in mind that the age you are, fifteen through seventeen years of age, you're in the school where they feed you breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and and and, and on top of that, you are physically active working on the field i mean like the best thing I, I i mean if i go back i was i just remember being hungry i just remember being hungry all the time and yes, yes, eating yes. so many oranges i was about to ask you that very yes. good question um as a student at that selective boarding school do you feel as though you had it better than the normal Cuban citizen. It seems as though your meals were scheduled, provided, and reliable. They might not have been very substantial, but of course the state had an interest in feeding you, right? To keep you as the youth strong, hopefully revolutionary in your, in your um, ideology as you, as you matured. So you say you were hungry, even at that stage, but did you have it better than most Cuban citizens who weren't in a boarding school? like that I don't, I don't think i had a better or worse I, I think everybody had it the same way uh if you were going to the university you would have to go through this three-year program and that was part of it um again at this point it was just what it is if you decided not to go to university and you decided to go to work then you will go to like uh um what did they call that like uh where you learn skill like a trade yes like a trade. a trade thank you so you will go to trade school mm -hmm. um so that's basically how it was i don't think i got a better or worse than anybody my age I mean, I see. it's just what it is I see. Uh, but it's but it's interesting to me that that was uh, a lasting memory of which you've not been shaken and that is the hunger yes I mean, I can tell you stories that I don't think the audience will appreciate, but uh, I mean, I can tell you stories where you are so, you were so hungry that you are literally mixing water and sugar and you're drinking that to, 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 to fulfill yourself, mm. you know, to satisfy that hunger that you are, you are constantly. I mean, that's, that's what I remember the most out of those three years of my life, just mm. being so hungry. All the time. And as a growing, right. And as a growing and developing boy growing into a man, and I'm sure that hunger was shared by, unfortunately, by all of your classmates and by many people in the country at that time. I do have to, to question you though, mm -hmm. um, just given the year, was that around the time of El periodo especial, the special period. Yes. Yes. So yes. for our for our viewers and listeners uh, to whom that term is completely foreign and unfamiliar, can you describe for us the special period? Of course, that's used somewhat euphemistically. El periodo especial. Describe to us what exactly that is. Well, that actually started right after the Russia fell. You know, communism changes. I mean, Cuba was a big, uh, or Russia was a big influence of Cuba since the 1960s. So when the USSR collapsed in the 80s, mm. uh, Cuba just got affected because they didn't have the goods. Mm. Uh, so basically, start to be a shortage of everything mm. in the entire island i'm talking about electricity like power food gas 
limit clothes, uh, basic living uh, stuff that we have today's day that we don't think about it. So I complete shortage of it. And that's that was a period that lasted for I think from the 90s all the way until well until now. I mean, things are not any better right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, we can't uh, neglect to mention the fact that Cuba is such a fertile island capable of producing so many, so many goods, sugar for one, tobacco. I mean, these are the staple cash crops, but but I'm sure very, very capable of producing a lot of things that its citizens, its own people could consume. But yes, it was oh, intimately and ideologically linked to Russia, to the USSR. And upon its collapse, Cuba fell apart as well. And it's fascinating to me to know that you were Again, growing up at that very time, just as it, it was just as interesting when I spoke with Olga a few months ago about um, her maturation into adulthood right on the eve of the, of the Soviet Union's collapse. So the fact that you lived through that historic moment is is really remarkable. And I know it's an experience shared with many others, but but still it's 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 worth hearing that because it wasn't very long ago. And of course, as you said, and this is something that I neglect to take note of, the repercussions, the the consequences of um, El Periodo Especial are still being felt by, by the Cuban people today. I wanted to draw your attention uh, to an article I read just recently, and it's it, it connects back to this, um, this hunger of which you speak uh, in Cuba. And it was an article from a blog called Babalu Blog, and, and they just comment on issues in Cuba as best they can. And I just want to read for you a few, a few, maybe two or three paragraphs, and I just want you to comment on them, okay, at the very end. So uh, the shortage of wheat flour, specifically in this instance, has hit private bakeries hard and has also put state bakeries in check. And this is a quote. I don't know what we're going to do when our child starts school, says Udinea, who's 38 years of age, whose son will start the second grade of elementary school in September. What my son always takes for a snack is bread with whatever appears, but now not even that is available. In Nuevo Vedado, a colorful private bakery that until recently offered bags of the so-called ball bread, in addition to hard crust French bread, baguettes, and rolls, now offers only roasted peanuts and egg white merengue. We're not offering bread because we don't have any flour, the employee explains. Sales have fallen a lot, and if we continue like this, we'll have to close. One more thing to add. The government, as usual, used the state newspaper grandma to rewrite the alarming reality on the island, quoting the government statement. There are no problems with the production and distribution of bread from the regulated family basket in the Cuban bread chain, the media said, citing a note from the Ministry of Internal Trade. So I, I know that was a lot, but uh, I read that article a few days ago and it um, it felt more than relevant to this segment of the of the conversation. So do you have any thoughts about that? The current situation in Cuba with a pressing paucity, a lack of wheat flour specifically, in addition to meat and dairy products? Absolutely. I mean, my parents still live in Cuba. So I talk to them on a daily basis and they tell me about the struggle that they're having in that island and the lack of flour, the lack of bread, the lack of rice, the lack of dairy, I mean, the lack of everything, mm -hmm. uh, the lack of toothpaste per se. Um, it's just the lack of everything. Like right now, it's not only that, at this particular time right now, they're having blackouts that last 10, 12, 14 hours every day. So not only you have problems trying to find the goods because the prices have increased 
significantly. Mm -hmm. So not only you have that problem, that when you find the goods, let's say you find a piece of meat, you got to keep it in your freezer, but then mm -hmm. you have a 14, 16 hours blackout. There is a good chance that that meat is going to go bad. Right. And it's not like the way that we live here, that you can go to the grocery store and you buy your fresh meat every time you want. So there is no need to freeze anything if you don't want to. So, or have it delivered to your doorstep in dry, in dry ice. Or have it delivered to your doorsteps, like, correct. Like, <laughs> we'll make a plug for Wild Fork. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Subscriber of Wild Fork. <laughs> Perhaps uh, collect a little bit of revenue from that fine company and we'll send it to, to, the, to, the, to the poor people of Cuba, to Ernesto's family. We'll, we'll send yeah, them a yeah, I think to, yeah, I think that we will help someone and that will make me feel very good. Oh, I, I hope to be able to do that. But of course, Cuba for energy, I mean, you're talking about blackouts. It's not because Cuba has adopted a, a certain green energy um, agenda. They're not, they're not building solar panels, right? They're not building wind turbines off the off the coast of uh, Guantanamo Bay. Like they're not. These aren't the things that they're that they're trying to institute in that country. The reason for these blackouts, for these shortages of energy, is I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is because of its reliance on Venezuela. And you know, Venezuela itself is, as we all know, a, a deeply corrupt, deeply, almost almost failed nation state, and. and um, you know, who has this wealth of, of natural gas and petroleum um, underneath the ground, uh, but is unable really to sustain itself in any significant way and to, and as well, more than less, more than that, then uh, to be able to, to export it out to needy countries, dependent countries. Uh, so that's, I'm sure, one of the main reasons for, for the energy issues in, in Cuba, about which we never hear in, uh, here in America. Yes, I mean, I mean, you just remind me uh, when you talk about Venezuela. I mean, there, there was uh, I remember back in the I want to say well, early two thousands, there was a program that the government in Cuba <clears throat> and the Venezuelan government did that will they will exchange uh, doctors. Cuba will send doctors to rural areas in Venezuela as an exchange of gas, oil, or any other goods. Uh, so that was a huge problem, which my dad, as a matter of fact, he did it. He lived there for six years. Venezuela. Yeah. He lived in Venezuela for six years uh, as a Cuban doctor. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I think my dad told me that they would they will send him to a very rural area and he will end up staying with mm. the locals in their houses. They will welcome him. And, I mean, very nice people. Mm. But that will happen with the idea that they will compensate a doctor for X amount of money per se, or maybe give it the possibility of having, getting a new car or stuff like that. <clears throat> But at the other, on the other hand, the government was just packing up all that money because when the, these doctors came back, they call it mission. When they, they came back, uh, they didn't get the whole amount that they're supposed to be getting. They got a, a portion of that. Right. Some of them might got a new car, a newer car. Uh, some of them did not. Mm. So everything everything is everything is just an illusion in that place i don't want to use the word that i have on my mind but i'm gonna go it's an illusion i think illusion is an is an apt word I, I'm, yes. I'm curious to know what uh, what is concealed in your mind right now but perhaps mm -hmm. we'll talk about that Let's, later yes <laughs> <laughs> right. so that's i mean that's enlightening i think many people i think would be shocked to learn about the special period, about this connection with Venezuela, this dependence on Venezuela, and also this almost a barter exchange uh, in which the two countries engage. 
uh, it's fascinating from, from top to bottom. So getting back to you personally, mm -hmm. I want to ask at the age of, well, you arrived here at the age of 27. At what point in your life did you realize or did you decide that this was a move that you had to make? I think I was 18 years of age when I started to realize that I, I no longer wanted to be part of that society. I no longer wanted to be part of that system and started to realize that being here or coming to America, coming to the US would be a lot better for me, even though I will have to leave behind everything I knew, everything I had, which I didn't have much per se, but you, so, I'm, so I'm what, referring about your your language or culture, sure. your religions so, per se. My question is what convinced you of that? If you didn't have a complete knowledge of what, what existed 90 miles north of you, beyond the Florida Straits. Well, you got to keep in mind that a lot of Cubans uh, fled Cuba before the revolution in the 1957, 58. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them uh, left Cuba in 1962, around that time. And then a huge amount of Cubans, they came in the 80s, which was called El Mariel, which that's another topic that we can talk about it later. Um, so these Cubans that uh, left Cuba to come here, I mean, maybe maybe this is the best way to describe it. As a child, you you will call these type of Cubans gusano. You hmm. you will call them like someone who is against a revolution, someone who is nothing. Hmm. Uh, but and that's the worst things that you can be—a a, counter-revolutionary. Exactly. As a so, case in, in, in France in the in the 18th century, correct. in Russia in the 20th correct. century, and in Cuba. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you will you will think uh, they would call it scoria. You will think that these people were really bad people. How could they leave this great society where everybody's equal and go to United States? Mm -hmm. Well, all that started to change when these Cubans that came here and they became Cuban Americans or so. They were going back to visit their relatives in Cuba back in the 90s or yeah, I think that started in the 90s. So then you will see someone that you knew from before and you see them well with uh, they have a job, they, they have a house or an apartment, they, they, they have a car, they, they pretty much get up every morning, go to work, come back, and then you live within your means. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to worry about, I don't know what I have to find to cook for my family today, or if I work hard or I don't, or if I show up to work or I don't, it, it really doesn't matter because everybody is equal, which in reality, not everybody's equal, but that's what the system is built up. Mm. So I think at yeah, the age of 17, 18 years of age, I think I, uh, I had a few interactions with the uh, Cuban Americans that they were visiting the island at the time and start talking to them because at this point I was a, a, an adolescent that, you know, I was curious about how the life was outside Cuba. Mm. And, and of course, at this time, we have to remember that there was no social media, there was no Instagram, no Facebook, uh, no television, or at least not a significant amount of television that would inform you of what was correct. definitely. Possible. Yeah, definitely not no social media. And the television is at our, uh, up to this day, the television is very well controlled by the government back then. I mean, we're talking about a place that has... Which, which really is quite a feat. I mean, when you think about it, again, you have an island that's 90 miles away from the most uh, prodigiously advanced country in regard to its export of culture and entertainment uh, in the world. 
right? You have a country of 330 million people in America, um, the third or fourth largest country in the world. The fact that Cuba, the Cuban government, is able to still prevent a lot of that culture from penetrating the island is quite remarkable. I mean, it's it's devastating for the island, but uh, for the people of the island, but uh, it is something. It's it's something remarkable that a, that is. a government is able to control for all that influence that is just north. Yeah, it is, and and I think. Uh... That's the main reason they have done such a great job from the beginning mm. up to this day. That that's the number one reason, in my opinion, mm. why that country hasn't collapsed, why it hasn't been a new revolution, why why there is no freedom. Mm-hmm. Period. Because which that's leads, the main reason why we Cubans. Which which leads me to a question. Which leads me to a question. Uh, do you predict a revolution, be it peaceful or violent, uh, within the span of your lifetime? I'd, as much as I would like to believe it will happen, I don't think it will. And I'm just going back to last year. Uh, right. For the first time, people took the streets and they started to express themselves, how they feel. And with the propaganda, uh, every a lot of social media that now it's in Cuba, you know, almost everybody has a cell phone all over the world. So uh, I really thought that some something will change. I really thought that, and I really wished that as well. Did you expect that event so quickly to vanish from the consciousness of? The Western world. I did not, because I remember that event uh, very vividly. I remember here in Southwest Florida seeing, and we discussed this at the time, seeing all the vehicles adorned with uh, Cuba Libre and you know Vive Cuba and all the paraphernalia, all the rallies, all the excitement over the prospect of a free and emancipated Cuba. It lasted a few weeks here, um, but of course it was a very regional um, experience. I don't know how widely reported it was even in America, much less the entire world. But it diminished quickly, that enthusiasm. And that was disheartening for me. It it looked like the first flicker of what could be something uh, very strong, uh, a flame that might burn uh, and continue to burn until liberty was was achieved, but it seems to have been extinguished. So you're more pessimistic in regards to the, the possibility that uh, that Cuba might be free. I, 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 yes, yes I am, mm. yes I am. I, I, I mean, I wish, I mean, I don't know, I, I would like to believe I'm wrong for, mm. saying, for saying that, but for what I'm seeing through the years, uh, it's just, like that. I mean, I, I like I said, I, I my parents still live in Cuba, and I communicate with them on a daily basis, and I have a couple friends that I keep in touch. And it's a struggle. Things are really bad over there, really yeah. bad. And and without seem- hope, right? And seemingly based on the uh, the article that I just read, not getting any better. And you know, it's call it pa- uh, Pavlov's hierarchy of needs, or call it human nature, it's difficult to think about political issues. It's difficult to think about organizing and revolting against a tyrannical dictatorship when you are hungry. Correct. Right. I guess a, a simple way that I can put it is without, like... Without sustenance, without, without that very fundamental um, nourishment, who can be expected to rise up in the streets? Uh, I mean... Maybe in, you you get to a point of desperation and a, des- a point of hunger where that revolution does occur, and and that is what happened in some ways in the French Revolution. I mean, you had severe bread shortages, you had terrible monetary mismanagement. We don't have to get into the, the details of the French Revolution, but um, it was precipitated by those very fundamental human needs, hunger being chief among them. Now, of course, the French Revolution led to 
sort of a, <laughs> uh, well, a, a tyranny of its, own, of its own sort. In the case of Cuba, it would be a revolution that would basically be a counter-revolution in a way. You'd be restoring something that was lost long ago, mainly um, an, an anti- or non-communistic um, form of government. Correct. Yes, I mean, it's, it's something that's been lost long, long time ago. Without a doubt, and, and I guess the best way I can describe it is like the situation was really, really bad when I left Cuba back in 2007. The situation is really even worse mm. today. Um, so, I mean, it was bad before that, well, I mean, it was bad when I was 18 years of age that I started to realize that I wanted to yeah. take the chance. Right. You know? now, now, the question is, 15 years later, right, let's say it's 2037, if it is even worse than it is now, and much worse than it was when you left, where does that leave the population? I mean, at a certain point, you have to, you have to wonder, right, to what lengths can a, can a population be to what depths can it be pressed down before it responds? I, and I, I, no one knows the answer to that question. Um, no one knows the answer to that question. I would like to believe that at one point something gotta happen. Now, it do you, has to happen. Are you convinced that it has to happen internally, or does it there, or should there be some sort of external intervention to aid that? I think it needs to happen internally. It might be a combination of both, mm. uh, but I think at this point for what I saw last year with people taking the streets was like for the first time in my life, right. I, I witnessed something that I never thought will happen in Cuba. And it's the very base, it's just democracy. You mm. being able to express yourself, freedom of speech. Mm. Freedom. Mm. Uh, and then nothing like it's just mm. no one talks about it anymore. Mm. Uh, it's it's not making any news. Yeah. And nothing has changed in Cuba. Yeah. So yeah, what's the hope for the people that live in Cuba? I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, and that's that's an honest response, and it's um, it's a justifiable one. I think no one can. Correct. I think if it continues the path that is going, uh, like they say, that Cuba is the biggest island of the Caribbean. You know, mm. I think it's just going to disappear. Mm. I think so. I think it's just going to be erased mm. from planet Earth mm. <laughs> if, if it continues that way. <laughs> I suppose it could be. We'll see if the sea levels change. If they rise enough, that, that could be that could be forthcoming. So, <laughs> so I want to ask you just a few rapid fire questions, okay? Because I know that you have to go soon, and we're we've been you've been gracious, very gracious with your time. So we're approaching. No, it's my pleasure. And I, we could talk all night, and, and perhaps we'll talk again because there are other issues on which I want to touch. But let's just let me just throw a few questions at you uh, with which to conclude. The first one is, uh, what is the one thing Americans misunderstand about Cuba? I'm not talking about Cuban Americans uh, or, or immigrants to this country. Uh, someone like me, someone born here, raised here. What is the one perception that that I might have? about Cuba that is simply wrong? Can you think of anything? I guess I could say that not the government of Cuba, it's one thing, and the people of Cuba, it is completely different. Mm. And you can, that's something that can be misleading when you think about Cuba, that you think that the Cuban people have the government mentality, and they don't. It's just yeah. the opposite of that, but they cannot express themselves. 
and right. say. Yeah, I think it's very important to uncouple the two. We are prone to do this with most, uh, let's say, adversarial nations. When we talk of China, for instance, uh, we have to be very cautious of talking about the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, uh, by which the, the government is administered, and the Chinese people, the population. I think the same thing goes with Cuba, the Cuban government, um, you know, still still dashed with all of the Castroism uh, with which it was originally instituted, and the Cuban people. Um, and I, for me at least, having lived for the past five years or so in southern Florida, I think I've really come to appreciate that, having been befriended so many amazing Cuban Americans, um, I've certainly learned that. So that's important, and I think that's a great lesson. Um, a, a, another question. One thing that Americans can learn from Cubans? To appreciate what you have. Mm. We, don't uh, have it, we don't have it bad here. Mm. We just sometimes don't appreciate what we have. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's, that's, that's excellent advice and something that we all need to learn. Um, and finally, and I think I already know the answer to this question, uh, but I'd like to end this little conversation of ours on a high note. Would you, had you the chance to repeat your decision at the age of 27, Make this journey again. Would you come to America once more? Without a doubt. Without what? a doubt. I am so, I feel so blessed from being in this country. Uh, without a doubt. I will do it over and over and over. Hmm. That's so heartening to know. And uh, without a doubt, we would be a far worse country without you and without people like you. No, I think I think what makes the difference of this country is people like you. Mm. You know, that appreciate all the cultures and other accents. Mm. Other just different, open, you know. Because at the end, I mean, when you take away our language, when you take away our accent, you take away the skin, we are humans. We're all the same. We're all the same. And we are born in this country, we are born in this world to laugh. Mm. Beautifully said. Beautifully, uh, beautifully said. And I love you, hermano. And I think we should end it with that. <laughs> I love you, hermano. You have a wonderful night. Thank you for having me here tonight. Buddy, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners and our viewers, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you again to Ernesto for being so gracious with his time and, and open with his history. And with that, buenos, buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later, my friend. You got it, my friend. Take care. All right. Ciao. Ciao.